0: Well, good morning. Pastor Tim got a better response, but that's okay. I'm sure you probably weren't finished praying with uh, Pastor Chad, but that's okay. It's good to be with you again from the pulpit. It's always a privilege and an honor to bring forth God's Word, and it has especially been a privilege for me to be a part of the group of men uh, Asked to share with this series that we've been going through the book of Exodus. And as we draw to a close of our series of messages, I trust that we will keep in mind those things which we've been taught up to this point and that they will continue to challenge us and to impact our growth as followers of Christ. And perhaps that will continue as we finish today. If you haven't already, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. While I'm certainly not known to be an avid reader, uh, when I do pick up a book to read, oftentimes I will jump to the end of the book just to kind of read maybe the last paragraph or maybe the last chapter, depending on what the book is on, just so that I can get an idea of knowing exactly where the author is going. That helps me understand how to interpret everything that I'm reading all along the way because sometimes I, I get lost. Uh, I, if especially if it's something deep, I, I need to know sort of where he's headed so that if I'm not headed in that direction while I'm reading, I need to back up and maybe start over again. Well, the book of Exodus provides us the ability to look at what's at the end of the chapter to sort of get an idea of what God is trying to speak to us as his people throughout the rest of the book. You can really do that with the Bible itself. If you look at the end of the Bible, which the last book is, we have it compiled as the book of Revelation, and you read chapter 21 as we did during the service earlier, and realize what God is up to about having a people with whom he will dwell in their midst forever... It kind of gives you an idea that when you start way back in the book of Genesis and realize that not only is he the one who created everything and he created man and when man messed up, sinned and ruined it that the rest of this book everything that we have in all 66 books in all of its chapters in every verse is leading towards an end that we read in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and that God is going to redeem a people. He's not going to leave them in ruin, in catastrophe. And yes, there will be problems and there will be consequences to sin and there will be challenges that will confront His people and there will be questions that there are no human answers to. But there's a point to it all. And that point is God is calling a people to Himself so that throughout the history of mankind for the past 6,000 years, God has been working on setting aside a people that are His. They will have nothing to draw from their own experience to say, I've arrived. There will be no accomplishments in which they will be able to say, I did it. But this is a story of grace in which God says, this is a people that I have chosen. This is a people that I have redeemed. And this is a people that will worship me forever. And down through the years, there have been people who have accepted that as the truth. There have been people who have simply labeled it as a myth, just another tradition that mankind has come up with to sort of explain the existence of who we are and why we're here. But the Bible makes it very clear, Jesus Himself makes it very clear that it is the truth. And depending on how you will relate to this truth of God's word will settle your eternal destiny. So as we look at the book of Exodus, which is one part of a much larger section of God's work of redemption. Let's remind ourselves here in chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not gaze in front of that mountain, So he, Moses, cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. Then Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation.
1: Moses made
0: haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray... Let the Lord go along in our midst even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Let's pray. Gracious God, I come to you, Lord, asking and pleading for your help. Your word is clear. Your word is evident. But Lord, my heart is full of unbelief. My mind is full of confusion. My heart is divided. And I pray, Lord, that you would open my eyes. Open our eyes, that we might see the beautiful things that are found in your law. Open our ears, that we may hear your truth. Give us a heart, a flesh, that will not only hear what your word has said, but that we would obey you in faith and in hope. Father, I pray that the Word as it is given forth today would be given and scattered upon good ground today. Lord, by Your sovereign hand, I pray that as You have brought people into Your midst to hear Your Word, that You have also been faithful to prepare us to hear and to act upon what You've given us to do. Father, I pray that I would be removed from this process. But Lord, may Jesus Christ be seen May he be heard. May we worship him in spirit and in truth as we study together. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come and find Moses having made intercession for the people as Richard so clearly made evident last time we studied in chapter 33. As God was ready to destroy his people because of their sin. Moses had ascended into the mount to receive the Ten Commandments. Moses returns to find them living in just unspeakable ungodliness. But yet Moses intervenes. He prays on their behalf. Asks God to, for His namesake and for His reputation among all the nations of the world to save them. So, God allows that to take place. Moses asks that, if I found favor, let me see your glory. God hides him behind a rock, allows him to see his hind parts. God, as best we can understand, passes by. And he sees a very small glimpse of the glorious nature of God. So in verse 1 of chapter 34, we pick this up where now God says, Moses, it's time to resume this journey. It's time to go along on the plan in which I had originally designed for you and my people. So go take tablets, go take stone. You remember the Ten Commandments were hewn on pieces of rock. Now I think it's very interesting that while this great intercessor, this great leader of the people of Israel, that as God tells them to go take two tablets of stone and bring them back up on the mountain where I'm going to write my words again, that it reminds Moses, this is going to replace what you shattered. That you as a leader of these people, You're not without guilt simply because you were not down with the people who were in their wicked idolatry in your anger. You shattered what I gave you. Now this is not something that you would hear uh, the uh, positive thinking preacher crowds that you may see on TV or the books that you might see in the bookstore that helps you with your self-esteem. But God is not in the business of helping us with our self-esteem. God is in the business of making us righteous through the works of Christ. By our faith and when we accept those, then we become restored in our value to Him as His creation. And it is not until we understand our place in our sin and our guilt and the responsibility we have of offending a holy, righteous God that we can move on into the work He has called us to do. Now, just like the prior instructions tells him that there is not to be anyone that goes up on the mountain with you, not even the animals should get close to the mountain or they'll die. As God's nature, His holiness, is so severe that sinful man cannot, apart from God's grace, stand it. Now, for those of you who have children, let me ask you, rhetorically when your children mess up when when you've given them instruction and they don't quite follow through as a matter of fact maybe they go to the other extreme and do exactly the opposite of what you've asked them to do if you're a teacher what happens if you've given your students a lesson and, and they fail well, me as a manager at work, and I've got some co-workers of mine who I'm very thankful that they're here this morning visiting with us, and as we give our employees tasks to do and we hold them responsible and they utterly fail, what do we do? I won't ask the pastors what they do when church members don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, that's another sermon for another day. But do we lighten up and say, you know what, maybe we were too hard on them. Maybe I shouldn't have asked so much of my child. Or maybe the employee just wasn't trained enough and maybe I was expecting a little bit too much from them. Or maybe that student just hasn't had enough background training and and maybe the context was just very confusing for them. So what do you do? Do you make it stricter? Maybe as a parent you feel like, you know what, Maybe there's one parent that says, you know what, I told you you were too light on him, we should have been harder on him. And then the other parent says, no, you were too hard on him to begin with, we should have been lighter on him. And it's back and forth. Do you try a different plan altogether and just say, you know what, maybe that was just the wrong plan, let me just scrap it all and start over with something new. Well, God, because his plans are perfect, doesn't look at the nation of Israel and say, you know what, these people just weren't bright. (laughs) For me to give them ten commandments, maybe I should just give them five commandments. Or maybe I should say, you know what, they're really not commandments, they're just sort of suggestions. And if you, you know, maybe feel like you're strong enough to deal with it, you know, maybe you can be a No. God had made a promise to Abraham, plain and simple. He told Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars that you could count the grains of sand that you can take measure of, your descendants are going to be great. And that they're going to be delivered out of of a time of slavery, and they're going to be my people and they're going to worship me. So God had already centuries before given His Word and provided a plan. And simply because the people messed up, God was going to stay true. This is consistent with what we see in the New Testament concerning believers. For Paul had a statement that was trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. For this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His patience, His perfect patience, as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. And this message is from the eternal God, immortal, invisible Only wise God. Did you catch that? Jesus does that all the time. It's an example to all the unbelieving world. God doesn't go out and choose people who are perfect, He doesn't go out and choose people that have it mostly altogether. He chooses the chiefest, the, the biggest sinners in the world. So that through His perfect patience He might demonstrate the salvation that comes to all who believe in Him. There are none of us who come to Him getting it halfway right and He does the rest. There are none of us who have God as a co-pilot. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And I'm with Paul. As a matter of fact, I get in an argument with Paul because I say, no, I'm the chiefest. That has been the most healthy remedy in our marriage between Amy and myself is that when we have, get, go to odds with one another, we have to remind ourselves, wait a minute, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I find it hard to be offended when I realize that I'm the chiefest of sinners and then we start arguing about, well, no, no, I'm the chiefest of sinners. No, we don't, really don't do that. But we have to understand that that's who we are. When we look at the, the children of Israel, It's real tempting to do this. Particularly when it comes to salvation, even though you may not take it this far through in your thinking. But our tendency is to look at the children of Israel. We believe it happened. It's a historical fact. Yes, I believe God brought them out of Egypt. I believe that He parted the Red Sea. Yes, I believe He led them with a a pillar of fire and and smoke. But I see their weakness. And that's not me. I know where they went wrong and I know better. Well, there were a bunch of idolaters. They lived in a nation that was full of idolatry. But you know what? I grew up in a Christian nation and so therefore I know who God is and I know how to obey Him. And we start out on this journey alone thinking that, you know what? I can do it better than the children of Israel did. That I don't need to walk by faith. As a matter of fact, Thank you, Lord, for giving me this example. That way I know where to, you know, to, to dodge this and to avoid that and to make sure I cling to this. And so we start doing it in our own works. We start being like that rich young ruler who approached Jesus Christ when he asked, how may I inherit eternal life? I've done all the commandments. Oh yeah? Yeah? Have you loved your neighbor enough to sell everything you've got and to give it away to the poor and then you want to come follow me? Have you done that? No. wait a minute, that's not one of the commandments. That's not what Moses put on the tablets. I haven't created any graven image. I haven't committed adultery against my wife. I could not care less about my neighbor's ox. Right? So I've already done better than the children of Israel. I would never make a golden calf out of the things while God's spokesman is away to find out what God has to speak to us. And we're reminded what Jeremiah says is that there is nothing more deceitful than our wicked heart. Nothing. So we need to understand that there was a reason why God replaced Not with something new, but with what had already been broken. Their broken broken spirit under bondage. Their short-sighted accusations against God in desperate circumstances. Their failure to see God's glory and his provision. That hadn't set God's plan back at all. As a matter of fact, it was feeding right into it. In fact, after Moses' intercession saved them from the destruction, God went on to call his people to set their feet to action. And it was going to be a work of grace. And thankfully we can as Paul says, look at these things that were written aforetime that were written for our learning that through perf- or through patience In comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the words were rewritten that were shattered. We also see a reminder of God's character. In verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, which I think is very interesting here. Because Moses already asked to see your, let me see your glory. And it was almost in a very indirect way he was able to see the Lord pass by. But here in this midst, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Compassionate and gracious. Has anybody ever fooled you into thinking that the God of the Old Testament was a mean, nasty old God who judged people and killed everybody off? The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, He has already demonstrated that here in just the last six months. Abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is a nature that oftentimes we will distort We'll say God is loving and merciful and gracious, and therefore it doesn't really matter what you do. He just sort of slaps it under the carpet, and you if you just simply try harder next time, then God will love you even more, but that is certainly not God truth. We have to remember that. This God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is a just, righteous God. He cannot allow sin to go undealt with. He had given them a pattern. Back in chapter 12, as they were leaving Egypt, that this Passover lamb that you would sacrifice once a year to atone for your sins. Yes, He gave them instructions to live by. He gave them all different types of feasts to celebrate and worship Him. But there was always going to be a continual sacrifice for their sin because He knew that their sin would always abound. But thankfully part of our worship service today does not require an unblemished lamb because the ultimate Passover lamb has been slain for our sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. Let us not think that our sin, simply because we came to church, and simply because we prayed a prayer, and because we sang songs, or because we put something in the offering plate, or because we came before Him offering our supplications and our prayers, that somehow God has measured us just through that. Or that any of that stuff is going to enhance Our faith. But let us be sure that our sin was on Christ, on the cross, and the awful judgment that was placed upon us was transferred to Him so that we might have life and even more abundantly. That God did not hide His face from our sin. God dealt with our sin severely in Christ. So severely for us to think that there's anything we can do to add to that is blasphemy. Anything that we feel like we're doing God a favor to sort of gain some special attention from Him To get his ear to lean closer to us in prayer. Christ has already finished it. He accomplished it on the cross. There's nothing we can do to enhance that. God dealt with sin. And there are certain circumstances that in this passage, God goes on to say that not only do I deal with sin, but the consequences may go past your own life. to generations to come, third and fourth generations may actually feel the consequences of our sin. But let us be sure to understand that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Circumstances may still be there. The effects and the hurts and the emotional scars that we bear because of our sin will be with us until Jesus Christ comes back. Let's make no doubt about it. God deals with sin. May we rejoice if we are in Christ that Jesus paid it all. While sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. So we have a reminder of God's character here. Not only is he compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, he forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins, praise the Lord, but he also punishes because he's jealous. He does not want us to, as he goes on to give the commandments, renewal of the commandments, that, hey, separate yourselves from all that idolatry because that's what got you in 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 your mess. Then in verse 14, for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a Jealous God. And perhaps the first thing that comes to your mind when you think, God, Jealous? Really? Is He paid? Well, come on, God, you're bigger than that. You're not going to get jealous, are you? Let's be reminded that there is no other being in the universe that has a right to focus on themselves. For God to focus on anybody other than himself, would himself be an idolater. God is the supreme being. And when he calls the people to himself, he is jealous for himself. Not in a sinful way, but in a righteous way. There's nothing that should demand our attention and our worship any more than God. And when he does not get it, he in his righteousness is jealous His name, as he says, is jealous. I'm the one true God. In all of this, in renewing the covenant, and while he emphasizes some of the commandments there in chapter 34, we need to understand that all the commandments are there and necessary for us to understand how righteous God is. With the first four commandments that reflect God's uh, instruction of how we should relate to him. We have the following six commandments that speak about how we relate to one another. Our Christian growth groups are doing a great job in covering these ten commandments and then some. So I encourage you if you're not participating in that that you join us before this series is over. But as we continue here not only was there a rewriting of the tablets. But there's a radiance around this covenant. When Moses came down in verse 29, he was glowing. Now, I would be kind of like Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when the nose started blinking. He was like, whoa, oh, that's a little weird. Moses' face was glowing because he had been in the presence of God's Shekinah glory. And it was such a distraction that he placed a veil over his face when he would speak to the people on God's behalf. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face, But whenever, in verse 34, but whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he'd take off the veil. Again, no sunscreen, nothing like that. You'd, you'd think that, well, you know, to keep this from happening, again, I'm going to put the veil on when I go before God. Not the other way around. But this is God's glory we're speaking about. And as we'll see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's already a veil there to keep us from seeing his glory. But before we get there, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses, uh, the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So Moses just ran around with a veil on his face because of this glory that was shining in on his face as a result of being with God. As I go through the Old Testament, it's always good to find a good commentary. And I I found a really good commentary on Exodus 34 here over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible still with you, turn over there and one of my favorite commentators, the Apostle Paul, is going to give us some insight as to this glory and, and how we should relate to it. Should we just look at this as a story that, well, there was a really great light or some sort of evidence of God's presence so therefore um, well strange things happen when you speak to God. What what do we come up with? But Paul gives us some insight as to how we should look at this situation. And it will help us in our understanding of the new covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 2 Paul once again finds himself having to establish grounds for his authority as an apostle because everybody, well, maybe they remembered him as a church killer, maybe they remember him as a legalizer, Uh, whatever the case was, or not one of the original 12. And so wherever Paul went, he often would have to establish himself, I am truly an apostle of Jesus Christ, guys, you really need to take my word on this. Take God's word for it. And so here in this letter, this second letter that we have to the Corinthian church, in verse 2, he says, You, the church, are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Hmm. That's a really weird analogy to make, unless there is a connection somewhere, right? Because we normally don't think of people as, well, written on tablets of stone. We go on. But on tablets of human hearts, which is even more interesting if the first analogy is sort of out there in left field. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything among us from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So let's put some pieces together before we start comparing what's in. Boy, we thought that that explanation of the Apostles' Creed was small. Uh, this looked really this much larger on my computer screen, I promise you. But
1: let's make some
0: connections here. First of all, he says he makes a comparison between tablets of stone and a human heart. We're writing, communicating on two different things here, right? And he says of the tablets of stone, that's not the new covenant. Well, even somebody like me can figure that out. Oh, you must be talking about the old covenant, right? That was written on stone. Oh, the old covenant. The Ten Commandments, right? We go all the way back to Exodus chapter 34 and where there's writing on these new stones, you know, to replace the ones that remember Moses broke, he shattered them. But Paul says that the ministry I have is different than what Moses did these stone tablets, the old covenant. My ministry, as you, the Corinthian church, can attest to. Is a ministry of communicating and writing on the human heart. A new covenant. New covenant, right? Where do we hear new covenant before? Moses didn't talk about a new covenant. Moses' idea of a new covenant was these new tablets to replace his tablets at what? He shattered. New covenant. We come into the life of Christ. Is Jesus in reference to the Old Covenant, the Sermon on the Mount? What did he do you do? A new law I give to you. And the Sermon on the Mount, what do you do? It's not just a matter of whether you've committed murder, it's whether you've hated your brother. It's not a matter of whether you've committed adultery of one, or where you lusted for her in your heart. It's not about whether you've stolen something, but in your heart, you're greedy. The new covenant was rewritten to be more than just tablets on stone, but but to be written on our hearts that would create obedience from a heart of, of faith. And this new covenant would be sealed as Jesus says, as you drink of this cup, this is my blood. The new covenant. Right? So Paul, a minister, not of the old covenant, Not of the stone tablets, but of the new covenant. The one that's written on the hearts of flesh. And as we see the old covenant in verse 6, Paul says, the letter in reference to the old covenant, that kills. In verse 7 he says, but if the ministry of death, which you just spoke about, letter kills. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, it did come with glory, right? Because when Moses received them, his face glowed. The glory was so great that his face glowed. It came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on his face because the glory was on his face. Fading as it was. So while it was a glory that was so severe that it made his face radiate, It faded away. Just like the tablets. There's a glory to it, but it it fades away. And we'll find out why here in just a second. And then it goes on to say in verse 15 of chapter 3, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Is that interesting to you? If you go back to Exodus chapter 34, what place did the veil have in this whole relationship? The veil was covering Moses' face, which represented God's glory. Now he's saying every time that Moses is read, when you read the Ten Commandments, it's veiled. You can't see it. The veil lies over their heart. This heart of flesh, this sinful heart, I can't see it. Chapter 4, Paul goes on to say that not only is my heart have a veil over it that I can't see God's glory when I hear the Ten Commandments given, but the God of this world is also blinding my eyes. That I can't see it. I can't see the glory of God because I've been blinded. I'm just in a world of hurt when I'm born into this world. I'm a sinner by nature, I'm conceived in sin in my mother's womb. I come in thinking in my self-righteousness that I can accomplish what's written on those two tablets. My heart deceives me into thinking that I'm accomplishing it. When I don't, I just cast it away in my mind. And all the while, I'm missing the true glory of God because there's a veil over my heart. Now, before we go any further, we need to deal with some things. First of all, what about this letter? Why in the world did God give the law then? Why did he give this letter if indeed it's going to kill me? Well, we have to look at a couple of passages of scriptures here. First of all, and I think this was on the screen, hopefully it's large enough for you to read it. But Paul said, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, there was a day before I knew the two tablets. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. That's how the law kills us. The law in revealing God's holy nature. When we come into contact with it, while we were ignorant in our sin, we're no longer ignorant. When we read the law, sin comes alive in my life. I notice that I'm doing something wrong. For example, thou shalt not steal. Before I knew the law, I'm in a grocery store. As a 7-year-old, chocolate's a good thing. As a 46-year-old, chocolate's still a good thing. But as a 7-year-old, I'm in a grocery store, I see chocolate. As a 7-year-old, I have limited resources. So, at 7 years old, I really could not care less about the law because I never heard about it. It doesn't mean anything to me, but the chocolate does. I've had it, it tastes good, I want it, so I take it. With limited resources, I walk out the store, I've stolen, right? Now, somebody invites me to go to Sunday school with them. But to this point, I'm thinking, you know what? I've got a really good process of getting chocolate when I get hungry. I just go in the store, it's right there on the shelf, I'm an innocent little kid, I smile big at everybody, I take it, I walk out, nobody bothers me. Of course, I grew up in a day and age where the surveillance cameras weren't quite so prevalent. However... I go to the Sunday school class, and guess what they're teaching? They're teaching the Ten Commandments, and I am confronted with the law. The Sunday school teacher says, God's word says, Thou shalt not steal. Guess what? I am dead. Now, so I was dead back here, but you know what? Sin has now become alive in me because now I realize, you know what? Wait a minute. The conscience that God has given me is pricked. I realize I'm guilty. Now, as a seven year old, I really don't care. And if I follow down that path of life, I'm going to become a 46 year old and I still won't care. But as soon as I come in contact with the law, then something changes. The law doesn't become new again, it just, it's always been there, right? But now I'm killed, I'm dead. The very commandment that God promised life to me or proved life to be death to me for sin, season, and opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Next frame. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did something good from God bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Two things are going to happen when I'm confronted with the law. I'm either going to be thankful to God, thank you for not letting me get away with my sin, so that I can plead for your mercy, or... My heart of stone has become harder and colder and I'm going to justify my sin. I'm going to condone my sin. I'm going to think I'm alright in my sin. I'm going to be able to justify my sin before anybody who ever confronts me and I will continue walking a path of destruction. But God was good in bringing something into my life that would bring death as I sinned. Each of us should be thankful that God does not just leave us to our sin. But may we not stop there. That's what the letter did. However, when we read Galatians chapter 3, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. We wouldn't need a new covenant. Nation of Israel, they proved that the old covenant doesn't give life. They can't keep it. We can't keep it. Nobody can keep it except for Christ. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Next slide. We see that the new covenant, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it gives life. While the old covenant was given to, up, here's your list of do's and don'ts there's going to be a sin or a sin offering regularly because you're not ever going to be able to keep it. Spirit, however, of the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ, that gives life. It's going to give you a glory that's going to surpass that which was former. In other words, that glory that wore off Moses' face will never wear out. It liberates us to see Christ. Chapter 4, verse 6 here in 2 Corinthians For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That glory never ends. Christ never puts a veil over His face. The veil is over our hearts. It is not until God opens our eyes that we will see the glory that's in Christ's face forever. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen the glory that's in Christ's face? That's synonymous with asking you, are you born again today? Because you are not born again if you have not seen the glorious grace that's found in Christ's face. In Christ's life. So it's not a matter of just trying harder. It's not a matter of doing better than what the children of Israel did. It's all about Christ has paid it all. The glory in His face is what I long to see. In our sin, we can't see it. We can't understand Him. We can't know Him. But if we do, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. If you're a believer, if you placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If the power that has raised him from the dead has raised you to new life, if you have turned from your ways of sin and are following by faith the call of God through Jesus Christ, then so there's something happening to you that didn't happen to the nation of Israel. When they looked at Moses' face and saw the glory, they were just, Dude, can you do something with that? But when we see the glory that's in the face of Jesus Christ, when the Spirit of God has revealed to us who Jesus Christ is, then guess what? There's something starting to happen right here. From glory to glory, we're being transformed into the same image of the One whom we see. Is that happening in your life today? Can you look in your spiritual mirror? Can you read the Word of God as a mirror? And say, by the grace of God, I'm not perfect. I still blow it. I still mess up. But I see the glory of Christ. I see a loving, kind, compassionate Savior, but I see a Savior who has paid the debt of my sin. Now, as we quickly draw this to a close, it's important for us, I think, to go back to chapter 40 of the book of Exodus as we wrap this up. My dad asked me when I was going to be finished today. I said, when I'm finished. He says, my preacher tells me he wraps it up. It's about to the end. So there you go, Daddy. I'm, I'm about finished. Chapter 40... we see God's plan that he had given instructions for this tabernacle for this court around the tabernacle for the indwelling place where God's presence would dwell where the ark of the testimony would be God says you know I got a place where we're going to put those ten commandments and Moses you're not going to break these things anymore of course Indiana Jones still hasn't found them they're out there somewhere the Nazis have them or something Anyway, we do know where the glory of God dwells. The Scriptures tell us. First of all, the glory of God was going to dwell in this tabernacle. Because we're told in verse 34, when Moses finally erected the tabernacle and the courtyard around it, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But you know what? This isn't it. This is a temporary place, right? They're not going to be on the wilderness forever. They're going into the promised land. God has already promised Abraham that your descendants are going to have a land. And in that land, there's going to be a temple. So that when Solomon finished his temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, we see that when that was finished, the presence of God dwelt in that mist. And when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. But we go further, and unfortunately I don't have enough time for this. Maybe Pastor Tim can pick up the study on the book of Ezekiel and figure out the Ezekiel's temple that we have some very specific dimensions about. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Wherever this temple is going to be, however it has already been fulfilled, is it going to be fulfilled, is it in heaven, is it our whatever. Somewhere there is a temple that the Holy Spirit, or the the glory of the Lord is going to fill it. But think about this. First John chapter 1, we're told in the beginning was the Word, right? We're told that the Word was God, the Word was with God, and we know that Jesus Christ is the one that John was referring to. So that when he comes to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, interesting choice of terms because that literally means tabernacle, and when Jesus Christ came to temporarily dwell with us, John says, we beheld His glory. Interesting idea, right? We follow all the way through the Scriptures. The glory of God was wherever His presence is at. And this is the glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is real glory. This is divine glory. Full of grace and truth. This is the same nature that's described in Exodus chapter 34. Of who God really is. And when He dwelt among His people, they beheld His glory. When Jesus Christ was on this earth, the greatest thing that happened, as wonderful as being raised from the dead would be, as wonderful as being able to walk after never being able to walk, or being able to see after you were blind all your life, the greatest thing was that the glory of God was revealed to mankind, full of grace and truth. It dwelt with them. And then He went away. But His glory didn't. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us, Do you not know, speaking to believers, that you're God's temple? You notice he doesn't say you're God's tabernacle? But you're God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. We do that enough by ourselves with our gluttony and our drunkenness and our own illful ways of living life. But God says, if you destroy the temple in which my Holy Spirit dwells in, I will destroy the one who does it. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Later in chapter 6, he says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. You are redeemed from sin. You're not to live the way you want to live. You're liberated so that you can. Let us not use our liberty for the flesh. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Where's the glory at today? Right here. Does my face shine so that you can tell? Is the glory to glory being produced in your life? Does the Spirit of God dwell within you? It's not a mystical, prayerful thing that you ask somebody to come and lay hands on you to to receive the Holy Spirit. It's not a some sort of religious ceremony that you go through to be ordained so that you can have the Holy Spirit and the glory of God dwelling within you, this is a transformation of the heart. This is when our eyes are open to see Jesus Christ and the glory that's in His face. Having that veil removed from our heart, having that veil removed from our eyes so that we can see the truth of who Jesus Christ is and it will transform you from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and He will write His commandments on your heart so that you through the grace and the power of Jesus Christ can obey these Ten Commandments and everything else He's given us to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we don't do that to gain access to God. We do that because God dwells in us.